Welcome back, everyone. If you could uh, come on in, take your seats. We're ready for the second panel. Uh, I want to thank everybody, all of you here who've made it through the weather. Uh, I hope nobody had too many terrible experiences on the roads. Anybody have a really terrible experience? You can raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Okay, I didn't have too bad a trip, so. Uh, but I hear if you're coming from the north, it could have been a little dicey. Anyway, so I am Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. I'm also one of the editors of the book that's sort of the launching pad for today's discussion. But my only function right now is really to introduce our wonderful moderator for this panel. And our moderator is Emily Wilkins, right here on my right. She's a reporter for Bloomberg Government covering education, law, and policy. She's a graduate of Michigan State University. Is that a land-grant university? It is a land-grant All right. Uh, she previously reported for CQ Roll Call covering immigration, education, labor issues. Uh, digging in some more specifics about her, she covered immigration in Congress in conjunction with the presidential campaign, gave a radio interview about Pope Francis' ability to impact the debate, and covered legislation on sanctuary cities and reauthorization of the EB-5 visa program. Now, hopefully, in addition to moderating today, she'll give us some insights on what to the pontiff thinks about higher education. <laughs> and with that, Emily, it's all you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Neil, for that introduction. Welcome to the second panel of the day. The first panel dealt with the history of higher education. Today's panel is called Where We Are Today. Um, we have some phenomenal panelists, and reading their full bios would probably take the duration of the hour, so I've shortened them down just a little bit. Um, starting with the far right, Todd Zawicki. Uh, he is the Foundation Professor of Law at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School and a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. He is the author of Changing of the Guard, The Political Economy of Administrative Bloat in American Higher Education. And he, along with Neil, is the co-author of Unprofitable Schooling, Examining the Causes of and Fixes for America's Broken Ivory Tower. Uh, to his left, Roger Miners. He's a professor of economics at the University of Texas Arlington and the author of Faculty Faulty Towers, Tenure and, uh, Tenure and the Structure of Higher Education, which looks at tenured faculty positions and how poor performing professors are allowed to continue at universities. Uh, to my immediate left, Oh, you know what? I got the names wrong. My apologies. I just read off the one for um, Roger Miners, who is actually to the right. Apologies. I have them just listed. I was just going down. Um, I, I missed uh, Benjamin Ginsburg, who is to my right. He is the David Bernstein Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Hopkins Center for Advanced Government Studies at John Hopkins University. He is the author of Fall of the Faculty, The Rise of the All-Administrative University and Why It Matters. And last but certainly not least, Lee Fritschler. He is the Professor Emeritus at the Shar School of Policy and Government with George Mason University. He was formerly the president of Dickinson College. He served as Education uh, Assistant Secretary of Education from 1999 to 2001. And he was the Vice President and Director of the Center for Public Policy Education at the Brookings Institute. And with that, I will hand it over to them. I think, Todd, if you want to go first. <coughs> 
Well, thank you, uh, Emily. Um, it's especially a thrill to talk about this topic, the political economy administrative bloat in higher education with uh, Benjamin Ginsburg, whose uh, book, The Fall of the Faculty, um, is a brilliant book and one of the first ones who called attention to this, uh, this issue of what I called uh, administrative bloat, what he calls in his book, administrative blight. Um, <clears throat> and this is a phenomenon um, that um, faculty everywhere are aware of, but many other people uh, are not. Um, and, and in the, the chapter, and what I think is interesting is that there's sort of a puzzle here, right, uh, which is uh, we trace uh, in a very summary way the uh, rise of the governance institutions and ownership structures of higher education from the early structures of uh, for-profit and um, um, religious-oriented uh, nonprofits, uh, where trustees um, had a very active role in picking the faculty, picking the uh, uh, picking the curriculum, and all those sorts of things. During the 19th century, um, for a variety of reasons, including the influence of the German model, um, <clears throat> faculty came to basically become the de facto <clears throat> owners and controllers of uh, the universities. Um, and we have a, a chapter in the book. <clears throat> by uh, Scott Mastin, who talks about uh, his view of why this might be. But the impact is, is that even though trustees are ostensibly in control of the universities, everybody recognizes it's nominal only, that uh, trustees really don't run the institutions. Um, and what has really come to basically uh, uh, define higher education is this model of faculty governance, uh, where faculty are in control of most of the uh, features of, uh, of universities, from curriculum to hiring to tenure, tenure structure, all that, uh, all that sort of stuff. So the, the mystery then is, if faculty are in charge, what is going on with all of these bureaucrats? Um, what is going on with this huge growth of this administrative apparatus uh, within uh, universities that don't um, serve any obvious educational function? Um, and that's what we're trying to, to, to figure out here, is what it looks like now is not so much that uh, faculty control the universities, but that there's this sort of odd form of shared governance uh, between faculty um, and the administration, uh, which um, don't so much seem to be checks and balances as sort of a, a form of uh, collusion almost. And <clears throat> the data is clear on this. The growth in uh, bureaucracy on, in higher education is, uh, is manifest. Um, I've just got some quotes and some data here, right? But what we note is that um, the proportion of compensation, the proportion of money, um, as college education has gotten more and more and more expensive, that money generally is not going into the classroom. It's basically going to two places. It's going to bureaucrats and buildings. I'm not gonna talk about buildings uh, in, in this talk, but there's a whole nother sort of issue involving uh, you know, these sort of uh, rec centers and lazy rivers and all this sort of stuff. I'm gonna focus on the bureaucratic part of it, right? Which is, as college has gotten more expensive, there's no evidence that money is going into the classroom in terms of hiring faculty, paying faculty, uh, and the like. Instead, basically what we've seen is the number of tenured faculty have actually declined. Uh, um, that uh, faculty, tenured faculty, have never had it so good, right? We teach less, we get paid more, uh, we work less than ever before, but there are fewer of us. Uh, slowly but surely, faculty have been replaced by adjunct faculty, contract faculty, and the like. And so while we've gotten a pretty good deal out of it, 
the way that the, the books have been uh, uh, balanced is basically by hiring relatively low-paid lecturers, adjuncts, uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So that's why the amount of money spent on faculty has largely stayed the same, is because of this displacement. Um, and this is just sort of more uh, data in some of the studies that, uh, that, uh, um, that look at these, uh, these things. Now, um, bureaucracy, bureaucracy has gone rapidly over the past 15 or 20 years. Um, and for those who are interested in that career, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics expects um, it to grow, uh, continue to grow rapidly uh, in, in coming years. Uh, so this is a chart from the Bureau of Labor Statistics where they predict what job opportunities are going to be coming uh, in, in the future. Um, and what you see here is the yellow bar uh, is uh, the number of new jobs expected to be created for educational administrators post-secondary. Uh, the blue bar is management occupations generally, right? So that these are high paid. There's a lot of them. We expect that there to be more of them. Um, problem is we don't know what they do. So there's a story I've heard uh, that's credited. Uh, the story I've heard, it was uh, John, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy was visiting the Vatican with Pope John Twenty-Third. And uh, Kennedy says to the Pope, uh, um, how many people work in the Vatican? And Pope John says, about half. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and why does that story come to, to mind? Which is, we literally, we literally do not know what these people are doing. I've looked everywhere. I've tried to find out what it is. We've got theories about what is driving the growth of uh, administrative bureaucracy. But we literally do not know who they are, why it has grown so much, um, and whether or not it's actually whether or not it actually makes sense, right? Um, that is an important research agenda, I think, for somebody if they were interested in tackling, which is to try to find out who these people are, what are they doing. What we know is that there's a lot of them, and that they're very highly paid. I think of it in terms of there's you know I'm a law professor, so I'm allowed to tell uh, lawyer jokes, right? Uh, but there's this old joke that one lawyer in a town will will starve, two lawyers in a town will thrive. Right, um, And that's kind of the way my impression is of academic bureaucracy is one academic bureaucrat works, two hold meetings, and then hire a third to actually do the work. Um, and so there's a sense in which they seem to be kind of creating make work uh, uh, for themselves, but we really don't, uh, we really don't know. Um, and so what I'm interested in this then is um, why is this happening? Why, if so much money is being siphoned off to these academic bureaucrats, why are the faculty putting up with this? Why are faculty and everybody else putting up with more and more money going um, out of the classroom um, and things that resemble education uh, to whatever these people are doing, which we're not exactly sure uh, what they are? More than that, what really impressed me on the urgency of this is more and more of what we think of what faculty should be doing and core governance um, issues um, is being yielded to, uh, to, to these bureaucrats. A good example is speech codes. Um, and uh, um, most people think that speech codes, right, uh, that, the fact, uh, that universities have, and almost every university has one, people generally think, oh, it's those crazy, uh, you know, those crazy communist professors. It's not. It's some minion in the, the student life office, right? It's some person who nobody knows who they are, right? Who does not come from an educate, you know, from a from a scholarly background, right? But they're basically there to like make life good for kids, right? 
I experienced this uh, it, uh, when I tried to get George Mason's speech code uh, repealed. We had a yellow light rating from fire. Um, I wrote about this experience for the, what was the Pope Center, now the Martin Center, uh, an article entitled, Meet the Mid-Level Bureaucrats Who Control Speech on Campus, right? And what I discovered was the faculty had nothing to do with George Mason's speech code. It was somebody in the student life office, uh, the vice president of student life uh, controlled it. They put it in, they took it out. Right? It took five years to finally get him to do it. No other faculty were involved. There were no faculty resolutions. There was no faculty decision to adopt speech codes. Right? If academic freedom and free speech is not a core uh, aspect of faculty governance, I don't know what is. But I don't think George Mason is uh, atypical in that. Right? I think these speech codes just appear out of the, the, the bureaucracy. Um, and a lot of other things, I think, have that aspect where uh, the faculty are losing a lot of their core uh, um, uh, functions. So what are the explanations? Um, one explanation by Green and others we talk about in the, um, in the, uh, in, in the chapter, um, and my chapter is co-authored with Chris Koopman, um, uh, who was a, uh, a student of mine and is now um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a think tank. He was also a Henry Manny uh, a student as well. Um, Chris, uh, uh, and, and so we wrote this together. One is that um, that it's just a tower that has arisen separate from what the rest of the university does. This may be because federal funding comes with so many strings uh, that you basically have to have bureaucrats to administer all that, to push the paperwork around, to basically handle all that sort of stuff. It may be that that, that money is just something that's not accessible to the faculty, and so bureaucrats just kind of take it, they do with it what they do, uh, all this federal funding and that sort of thing. That's one possibility. I suspect that probably explains some of the growth in academic bureaucracy, but I'd be surprised if it did uh, all of it. The second theory is just, uh, I call colleges as country clubs, right, which is, that we get more and more administrators and bureaucrats because parents and students are willing to pay for them, right? That they want the things that these people do, whatever they are, right? Consumption amenities, right? Uh, um, in terms of student services and organizing parties and uh, um, you know, all the various different sorts of things um, uh, that, they, uh, uh, that, the, the, that they do, right? This seems to be the reason why buildings have become so lavish, right? Is Parents and students want fancy buildings, all right? Um, you know, I, my kind of joke that I think if, you know, Rich said uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, he was going to pass a new law last thing. I, you know, one law I would consider rep, rep, uh, supporting would be when you take a college tour, you're not allowed to, when you go to a college, you're not allowed to take a campus tour, all right? Because where do they take you when you go on a campus tour? They take you to the fancy uh, uh, students' uh, rec center and the gym, right, and the cafeteria. Well, we used to be a cafeteria and is now a food court, right? A lot of this is the same sort of thing, right? Maybe that people are paying for just a lot of bread and circuses and entertainment, and they're willing to pay for it, the fact that they're doing it. My view is, um, and this is an article, uh, I wrote an article a few years ago on institutional review boards, uh, where I first put this out and I develop here. A third alternative is basically um, building on uh, William Niskanen's model of government bureaucracy, that nonprofit bureaucracy kind of takes on a life of its own. Uh, that, that, uh, that bureaucrats are basically empire builders uh, in a world in which profit and loss signals um, are absent. Um, Bureaucrats within universities tend to just want to build their empires to have more people work for them because that gives them promotions, more money, more perks, uh, and all those uh, and all those sorts of uh, sorts of things. Um, 
Just another minute or two, and then I'll, uh, um, uh, I'll close, right? Which is, so one question, and I'll be interested in hearing uh, Professor Ginsburg's view on this, is why don't the faculty push back, right? Why have the faculty allowed this? And I think one reason is the faculty have embraced some of it, which is maybe not speech codes, but a lot of the things that bureaucrats do now are things that faculty used to do. Course counseling, career counseling, things like that are things that faculty used to do, didn't really want to do. Um, and what we have now is sort of, uh, for permanent faculty, they're, they're, they, we've kind of created a guild, right? As I said, there's fewer and fewer of us. We work less, we get paid more than ever before. Um, and as long as you don't touch our salaries and perquisites, we're perfectly happy to, uh, um, to have the classes taught by, uh, um, by adjuncts uh, in, in the like, right? And offload the things that we don't really want to do. And so maybe that it's not actually taken from the faculty, but that we've given a lot of this uh, to, the, to the bureaucracy. I think a second thing is collective action and monitoring costs, uh, which is it takes guts for a faculty member to stand up to the administrators. Tenure protects you, but only protects you a little. Right? An administrator can really make your life unpleasant if you try to get crossways with them, if you try to get access to the budget, if you try to find out where money's being spent uh, in, that, uh, in, in that sort of thing. Third, administrators have information asymmetries. Right? They simply have more information. They can stonewall you uh, if you wanted to get the information. They can make their reports incomprehensible uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the like. And so, um, and so I think that the challenge of reigning in bureaucratic growth is actually quite an interesting uh, and difficult challenge, that there's reasons why it has happened, although we don't fully understand it, and there's reasons why faculty um, have kind of yielded it to, um, to uh, um, uh, yield, yielded them. And with that, I will sit down and um, yield the podium. Todd is a former student of mine, and so he and I agree on most things, and he, he kind of uh, preempted my remarks. He's the only person who ever wrote a thesis under me. Being a tenured professor, I am profoundly lazy, and so whenever students would come and ask about writing a thesis under me, I'd always fob them off on somebody else. <laughs> but in Todd's case, I knew he was smarter than me, so he could write the thesis with no problem, and I wouldn't have to expend much effort. And, and therefore, of course, that is part of the problem with uh, tenured professors. Now, why did tenure evolve originally? And that's what my chapter looks at, is tenure's evolution and where it stands today. It was originally a quality-enhancing device. If you looked at how colleges were put together 100 years ago, presidents did most of the hiring directly. They generally didn't know what they were doing in these different disciplines. And so serious faculty in serious disciplines at major schools were the people behind tenure. It was a way to get rid of incompetent junior people who were hired by the president who didn't have a clue what he was doing. But over the years, like many good ideas, it was substantially perverted and has today become the uh, basis for the lifetime sinecures that uh, those of us who are privileged to hold those positions uh, have, of course. And it's expanded beyond chemistry and other substantive areas into vacuous nonsense fields in which people purport to produce degrees that have no market value for the poor students who fall into those. 
Uh, we still hear the same justification for tenure today, uh, that tail gunner Joe is going to come get us and uh, remove us. Uh, the Red Scare is still around 60-some years later. But of course, it's actually libertarians and conservatives who probably see, need the protection more than the, the lefties because they tend to uh, dominate the universities today. Legally, you can fire incompetent tenured professors. There's no problem with doing that. It doesn't happen because of the defective nature of the structure of higher education, that they are nonprofit institutions, as Todd mentioned. Whether they are private or state institutions, the incentives of the people running these institutions is much the same. Now, it's disturbing to economists to have nonsensical institutions persist over time. And so there's a rich literature in economics trying to come up with economic justifications for uh, the existence of tenure. But uh, having reviewed that literature, which is covered in the chapter in the book, I don't find it to be very persuasive. Instead, the best explanation goes back uh, more than 60 years to the great economist Armin Alchin who had a great influence on Henry Manny's view of it, which is colleges are nonprofit organizations and they are as inefficient as most nonprofit organizations. But as Armin pointed out, no matter what form of organization you have, there are always rents on the table. And tenure is one of those forms of rents. And then we engage in the, uh, the seeking of rents within universities, trying to capture benefits for ourselves. And we engage in this uh, structural organization where you leave us alone, I'll leave you alone. We've all got our own little share of the pie. And uh, then we, we defer to the bureaucrats on more and more things. Colleges and universities are bureaucracies, not much difference than the DMV. Everybody complains about the DMV and how nasty the people are there and they don't do a very good job. Well, they're bureaucracies. Of course they're not going to reform on their own unless there is a major structural change. Uh, the people who work there are going to maximize their own self-interest according to the rules that they work under, and we're no different in colleges and uh, universities. We're well protected, but as Todd mentioned, the percent of university budgets that is going to faculty is shrinking over time. We face increasing competition from adjuncts and non-tenure track faculty who, on average at my university, non-tenure track faculty cost one quarter uh, the cost of a tenured person to teach the same class. And from what I can tell, having run a department there for years, there isn't much difference in the quality of the education that's delivered, especially at the undergraduate level. Colleges are, are pretty bad in part because their governance is extremely weak. Boards of trustees uh, don't have much of a clue what's going on. Uh, their, their own capital is not invested in the institution. They're there for relatively short terms in Texas and other states. Of course, the primary perk is extremely good seating at, in Texas, the University of Texas football games, and that is their main concern, uh, to come to campus a couple times for games and then have to sit through boring meetings where you rubber stamp the curriculum and uh, changes that are shoved through them uh, hundreds and hundreds at an individual meeting. So there is no oversight that is going on, and they don't have the knowledge to give the oversight uh, anyway. 
Presidents of universities are not interested in having a fight with the faculty, so they tend to ignore them. You throw a bone their way, uh, always claim to be working in their interest and purport to uh, work on their behalf diligently, but in fact, they don't much care about them. Now, why have, has the left come to dominate the structure within most universities? George Stigler, the great economist from the University of Chicago, observed many years ago, people with the lowest opportunity cost are more likely to gravitate to academic administration and its, its ever-growing form. He said, people in science and engineering and the more serious discipline, they've got real things to work on. Uh, but if you're in many of these weaker disciplines, you're lowly paid, and maybe you've even come to realize the work is pretty boring, so they generally are the ones who volunteer for committees, and the next thing you know, they are deputy associate provost in charge of this, that, and the other thing. You rarely see those people coming out of science, engineering, or even business. They're almost all out of assorted so-called liberal arts areas. The cost of college is a, a problem and it is continuing to grow, but it's not because of us overpaid tenured professors. Uh, most of us are overpaid, but we are a shrinking tribe, as, as Todd noted, and the faculty, the administration is quite sensibly at most universities seeking to shrink that, shrink that further and further. We have a huge number of highly educated people out there in the community who are willing to come teach a course largely for fun because it's of interest to them, and they tend to do a good job, so we're not really much needed anymore. Accreditation plays a large part of this. The accreditation associations have gotten ever more aggressive in their controls. Uh, so that plays a part of it. Now, the return to higher education is con uh, consistently shown to be quite high. And so I think that most people just don't see an alternative. Where do you send little Johnny? Well, you've got to send him to the university because the return to a college degree is quite high, and there's some evidence it's even been growing. Even if we do a bad job, the question is, what's the alternative? And parents and students don't see a lot of alternative. They don't come because they're that enthralled with what is learned on campus. It's that they don't see much of an other path to a career. Colleges, of course, are not nimble. They're stuck with antiquated disciplines. So you have lots of colleges that still have departments teaching German, which nobody takes, and there isn't any reason to. Your Google Translator can handle that for you. And they keep replacing those people, even though there's no demand from the students. They don't teach useful things like computer programming. Well, let's thank goodness they don't, otherwise COBOL would still be the, the dominant language as we would have tenured up people who knew how to teach that decades ago and they would still resolutely stick with it. So we do see the evolution, of course, as, as one of the speakers before mentioned, that firms like Google and uh, others, they don't much care if you have a college degree. It's what kind of programming skills you have and so on, and we don't teach those highly valued things at universities. Um, so I don't see that there's a lot of hope for rapid change. It's a slow process of uh, evolution in uh, universities. State schools in particular are highly protected by members of the state legislature. A couple of years ago in Texas, uh, there, were, there were two tiny uh, junior colleges that they thought of zeroing out of the state budget. Nobody was going to them. 
Well, the members of the legislature from those districts went to the mat over keeping those things alive. It's like closing down a military base. Uh, nobody wants to get rid of them because they're in their district and they generate jobs. So changing the structure of higher education is politically extremely difficult and legislators are not going to be the ones to do it. They often attempt to discipline us by passing another uh, silly regulation saying, we need to see data collected on this, that, and the other thing. Okay, we generate the data for them, and then, as Todd mentioned, you hire more bureaucrats to help collect the data that you send to the state legislature, and as near as I can tell, nobody ever reads it, and of course, we cook the numbers anyway to make ourselves look good uh, consistently. So there is concern about oversight, but it's never effectively executed. Thank you. Well, let me uh, agree in part and dissent in part um, to the uh, comments made by the previous uh, speakers. Uh, First, I can, I can answer the question you raised, where do all these bureaucrats come from and what do they do? Uh, as to the first, bureaucratic growth is generally endogenous. That is, schools bring in money and bureaucrats, like managers of everything else, spend it on themselves. I don't think there's much of a mystery there. And what do they do? Well, I asked myself this question several times. I decided to do a little research um, because uh, Western states tend to have open meetings laws, so I was able to look to see what they did. Uh, it's all online. You can, you can uh, check my research. It's definitely re replicable. So I looked at the agendas of the meetings at a lot of colleges and universities where it was available, and I discovered that there was one topic that dominated all administrative meetings. Now, when I made this discovery, I was very excited, so I went to lunch at the faculty club and asked people what they thought. Uh, some people said, well, money. No. People said the strategic plan. I said, no, that was close, but not, not quite. Uh, there was a vice provost sitting there, and she said, well, I know the answer to that question. At meetings, people first discuss the minutes of the previous meeting, and then discuss plans for future meetings. <laughs> that dominates the agenda. So it's an all, and some of you probably will agree with me, it's an alternate universe <laughs> called meeting world. Uh, it occupies some quantum space of which we are not fully aware. That's what they do. Um, I, I was going to talk about administrative uh, bloat or blight, which is my, my usual favorite topic um, at these sorts of uh, panels. And by the way, I want to say that I, I don't know of those schools that are run by the faculty anymore. Uh, more and more schools are run by administrators, and the province of the faculty has declined. In part, the faculty has given it up. I, I admit I'm happy to have someone do the advising, and I feel guilty because when you give up those little things, Pretty soon they take the big things too. Uh, another part of it is that the administrators, whatever it is they do, attend meetings, they do it full time, uh, whereas we don't. Uh, we are usually working on something else and administering is at best a secondary or tertiary activity. And a third point on, on administrative bloat, um, 
is that there's been a change in the character of administrators in recent years. I think everybody's probably noticed this. Administrators used to be drawn from the faculty. Uh, often they were part-timers. And these faculty administrators uh, weren't imperialistic because they expected to go back to the faculty. They had no stake in the administration. Uh, I remember when I was at Cornell, we had a very good arts and sciences dean who was an economist by trade, Fred Kahn, who um, was you know, a very well-respected economist. Now, he had no assistant deans or associate deans or anything like that. No one thought that the dean needed any of that. And moreover, he was part-time. He taught a couple of classes, too. Now, uh, I don't know that the dean today, who has many associates and assistants and certainly doesn't teach, um, does any more work. But the difference is that Fred had no particular stake in growing the bureaucracy. Uh, he occasionally gave an extra position to the economics department. All right, we, we didn't uh, fault him for that. Uh, but he didn't add any bureaucratic slots. And today's administrators are committed more to administrative careers. And most students of bureaucracy will, will recognize the pathology here, that if your stake is the bureaucracy, that's where you tend to, uh, to put your chips. But let me uh, say a few words about this much maligned institution, tenure. Now, I have personally held tenure for about 41 years. And I can't see that it's done me any harm. Uh, <laughs> So I don't see why anyone would want to do away with it. It's an excellent institution. I, I, I feel about tenure, you know, the, the old Churchillian line, it's the uh, tenure is the, uh, he said it about democracy, but tenure could be said that tenure is the worst form of governance except all the others. Um, and all of us can tell uh, tenure stories. I remember when, when I came to Hopkins, there was a, professor of comparative politics who was in his mid-80s, who seemed a lot older to me then than he would now. Uh, and he was, he had not kept up in his field. Uh, students came to complain to the department chair that this uh, gentleman was giving lectures about countries that no longer existed. <laughs> And, and, and was skipping countries uh, that, that had been created in the last 15 or 20 years. <laughs> so the department chair actually went to visit him, atlas in hand, and uh, they pointed out some of the new countries, pointed out <laughs> some of the countries that were no longer there. And, and this professor took it in. He said, he had a German accent. He said, I lecture about the good countries, not the bum countries. <laughs> So there, you know, no, no question that there is a downside to tenure. But there, there is an upside as well, uh, which makes me feel that it's important to keep it, though I'm not sure that, it's, that in the next generation there will be tenure. I think it's a disappearing institution. I think that's too bad. Um, tenure has two values from my perspective. Um, one is, without faculty tenure, um, administrators are fully in charge. Okay, the only thing that prevents administrative bloat, blight, what have you, from taking full and complete charge of the university is the tenured faculty. Um, adjuncts do teach very well. I mean, I've, I've um, personally, I, I'm ashamed to say, I've employed quite a number of adjuncts, 
Uh, they, they are excellent teachers. Uh, if they're not, they're replaced. Uh, so that, that isn't the issue. But adjuncts can't play a role in the governance of the university because if they uh, annoy the powers that be, they're not going to be there the next semester. And moreover, they have no particular stake in the school. So in terms of governance, uh, in terms of faculty governance, tenure is critical. And without tenure, uh, particularly uh, with the rise of the new form of administrator, the non-academic put in charge of the university, there's a danger uh, of what I you know, think of as a reversal of ends and means. To the faculty, the purpose of the university is teaching and research. Uh, some do research, some teach, some do both. Uh, but basically, that, that's what we see as being important. Uh, the buildings, all of this stuff is nice. I mean, we all like clean bathrooms. Um, but that's secondary. Uh, you know, Dan Polsby, who isn't here, said the danger of administrators is that they develop an edifice complex. Uh, and, you know, we, we are certainly familiar with this. Um, you know, I, by the way, you said the trustees don't govern. Not at my university. Mr. Bloomberg, may his name be praised. Uh, <laughs> when he says... Trump, the president, Trump's two or three times. Uh, but um, at any rate, the, the newfangled administrator, the person, I mean, you know, 25% or more of current college presidents have no academic background. Um, and many of the provosts, the deans, the deanlings, and so forth, have no academic background. To them, the university is just another bureaucracy. Um, and to them, you know, to us, teaching and research are primary. To them, teaching and research are how you bring customers into the store. Uh, they advertise, I, uh, you know, these tours that we're not supposed to go on. Actually, they're very instructive because the, um, the tour guides are given a briefing book, what they should say about the school. And it's almost, almost always wrong. Uh, <laughs> Because the people, am I, am I wrong about this? The people in the admissions office have no idea what the school does. <laughs> you know, I, I teach a seminar in the, in the politics of higher education. And one year, we had the director of admissions come in and give a talk. So she handed out our, some of our admissions materials. Um, they used to have the view book. Now it's all online, but, but the view book... And students were sort of leafing through these. And one student raised his hand and said, you know, all these pictures, I don't recognize any of them. Were these taken at Hopkins? <laughs> well, no, they weren't. <laughs> Our admissions materials had been outsourced to some. <laughs> they were generic. So nothing, nothing in them showed anything that took place at Hopkins. <laughs> I pointed this out to the arts and sciences dean who looked at it for the first time, and he said, wait a minute, this lake on the front cover? Where did this fucking lake come from? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's what he said. I'm sorry. <laughs> wasn't me. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that it was because the admissions office knew nothing about the school. You know, as a parent, I took my kids to various uh, presentations, and people were talking about schools that I knew very well, and I knew what they were saying was totally false. You know, probably some of you have had this experience. If not, it's fun. 
Um, so, you know, the point is that, that to many of the administrators who run our campuses now, not all, of course, but many, uh, it's just another bureaucracy. Uh, the things that the faculty and students allegedly do, which they may or may not do, uh, are ways of drawing more customers into the store. And of course, we want to show that our application rate is incredibly low because that's good for our bond rating uh, and our US news rating and so forth. Um, secondly, um, tenure is critical to uh, academic freedom. Untenured faculty generally keep quiet. Uh, and if not, uh, they're, they're fired. Um, you know, there have been so many cases in recent years. I mean, there was a case at my university where uh, an adjunct in the economics department questioned um, such uh, important concepts as comparable worth and other progressive concepts. Uh, well, he was fired. Uh, there's no question about it. Now, uh, I, you know, I'm one of those um, unfortunate uh, right-wingers in a progressive institution, um, and my views wouldn't be tolerated. I mean, I teach a course on uh, violence in which we look at the uh, firearms literature and have some questions about the analysis. Um, I had complaints. Pa one parent found in her son's backpack during break a copy of uh, John Lott's book, uh, Fewer Guns, More Crime. It was one of the things they read. Um, and she actually wrote a letter to the president. Now, the president, uh, there is a vice provost in charge of answering these letters, I'm sure. <laughs> so, but had I, had I been an adjunct, this would have been a serious problem. Uh, I told the student, uh, I said, you know, you're 20 years old. Why, is it, why does your mother need to look through your backpack? Um, <laughs> So um, with, without a tenured faculty, academic freedom uh, becomes a, uh, a vacuous concept. Uh, I think it's very important, you know, even in these backward humanities fields, even in German, to be able to say things that people disagree with. Um, even in the sciences, I've had physical science scientists say to me that, um, they, you know, in the course of presenting ideas that most people disagreed with, you know, was, they were very concerned. Um, had they been adjuncts, they would have been very concerned about doing this. And certainly in what I teach, um, in economics, uh, in sociology, and all of the social sciences, it's very important to be able to take issue with what other people think. It's very important to present silly ideas because that's, you know, from silly ideas and from a debate about silly ideas, sometimes uh, you, you think of something uh, that's different. Uh, I mean, my own uh, tendency is that if everyone agrees on something, I feel it's probably wrong or boring. Uh, and that's an attitude that, that only a tenured faculty member can have. So at any rate, um, I would say that both in terms of governance and in terms of academic freedom, tenure is critical. And on the uh, governance issue again, um, you know, there, there are several models of, um, you know, bureaucratic management. Uh, but one model that 
has been very successful in the world. The Germans call it Auftragstaktik, mission-oriented management, which means that the, uh, particularly when, when an organization uh, is made up of professionals, um, hierarchy is, is inappropriate. Uh, those at the bottom who actually carry out the tasks need to have uh, a great deal of uh, freedom of action. And the classic example that's given is why the Wehrmacht defeated the French so easily. You know, when the German tanks rolled up to the Meuse River, due to some glitch in the central plan, uh, the bridges hadn't been brought up. Well, the, the junior officers jumped out of their tanks and waded across. The French were shocked by this and telephoned Paris for instructions. Well, by the time the instructions arrived, it was irrelevant. They were all being marched off to prison camps. Uh, so I would say in the university, Auftragstaktik is the appropriate model because the troops on the ground, uh, they is us. And we actually know something about what we're doing and need to have uh, more rather than less authority over the university's operations. Uh, even though, even though we don't go to enough meetings uh, where past meetings and future meetings are the primary uh, topic of discussion. I've decided to give my talk a title. It's called On the Road to Universal Higher Education. And I'm probably the best person in the room to talk about this because I've been in this uh, uh, profession uh, for 60 years and I can remember uh, talking to audiences like this one uh, 60 years ago without uh, this thought of universal higher education ever entering my mind. Uh, it was uh, something that none of us talked about. But <clears throat> today, uh, 60 years later, uh, we have created and by we, I mean uh, governments, uh, faculty, staff, uh, parents, students, a huge enterprise uh, which doesn't resemble uh, very much at all the institutions many of us still think about or the institutions which were around uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, for example, the participation rate in higher education when I stood at this podium or a podium like this 60 years ago, uh, was about 15% of high school graduates. Uh, today, that figure is up to about 80%, 90% of high school students going on to post-secondary education. Uh, today, we have uh, 30 million undergraduates uh, and 3 million graduate students enrolled in various institutions, public, private, large, small, for-profit, not-for-profit. And we have a growth rate from, this is a figure I'm very interested in. <clears throat> in 1900, the, um, the, uh, the rate for students completing a higher education degree was 4%. Uh, in 1950, it was 24%, and uh, today it's about 34 or 35%. <clears throat> so we uh, have become a degree-oriented uh, nation, a higher education-oriented education, and we've managed uh, to make this uh, transition or this world, new world of ours 
Uh, extremely difficult, it seems to me, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is we have lumped uh, every sort of education institution beyond high school uh, into the category of higher education. Uh, this is something that the federal government had a big hand in uh, with the Higher Education Act, but also more than that in regulations which followed and in uh, various funding uh, opportunities uh, which uh, they, they opened up. So this higher education environment we're going to be living in, for we live in now, and into the future, is going to contain all sorts of institutions, all sorts of people, with all sorts of goals, and as I said, I think we could almost apply the term uh, universal uh, to it. <clears throat> this uh, creates several problems that today, in this transitional period, transition in our thinking, uh, because, um, we tend to measure things, measure success uh, in ways which aren't completely relevant to universal higher education. Uh, for example, <clears throat> we don't like the fact that in higher ed, traditional higher ed, we have a 54% graduation rate. 54% uh, graduation rate, to my mind, uh, is a possible, and uh, <laughs> surround this with a lot of possibles, is a possible indicator of quality. Uh, we open our schools to everybody. These everybody's who go, some don't find it what they want, some don't find it agreeable, some want to get out for other reasons. And it seems to me that to raise the graduation rate for higher education today uh, would mean a reduction in quality. I don't understand how we use the graduation rate as an indicator of quality. High school graduation rates are about 95%. Uh, is that an indication of quality of high school education? I don't think so. I think the 54% figure is probably a pretty good one for higher education today. <clears throat> we also, it seems to me, in higher education today, uh, don't recognize the value of our wide open, first time, first chance, second, class, second chance, third chance opportunities to enter and succeed. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Europe. I was a member of the European University Association Board for several years. Uh, spent uh, a lot of time trying to understand universities in Europe. And of course, in Europe, you make your choice as a high school uh, junior through an exam as to what, whether or not you'll be going on into higher education, and then to which school and in which curriculum. You make a decision very, very early, and it's very, very hard uh, to uh, change your mind or to make up for mistakes you might have made as a high school junior in preparing for that uh, all-important exam. Uh, Europe, by the way, is trying very hard, uh, to, in many countries, Ireland I know very well, is trying very hard to get out from underneath that kind of a system. And I found the reason they're having so much trouble is parents' distrust of government, Parents worry that if students aren't admitted on the basis of exams, they'll be admitted to higher education institutions on the, on the basis of political information and political clout. Uh, it's a really strange uh, situation, it seems to me. It has some logic in it, uh, but it is a, a huge problem for Irish higher education today and education throughout Europe. So I would say we should be cautious of using that 54% graduation rate uh, as something uh, very meaningful, except it's an indication that we are open and we, we do have uh, standards in our teaching. 
let me say a word or two about uh, funding. <clears throat> uh, I can remember the good old days in higher education. I appeared at uh, Union College in Schenectady, New York, uh, freshman year, 1955, and I uh, noticed a huge uh, cardboard carton, it's a cardboard box, just sitting outside of uh, one of the uh, administrative offices. And I asked the secretary in there, what, what's that for? And she said, well, this is where the trustees bring their used suits and put them in the box so the faculty can get some new clothing. And, uh, you know, I, I was a kid then. I, I, it didn't mean uh, very much to me. I didn't pay any attention to it. But today I look back at that and think, uh, my goodness, how far we've come in my lifetime. Uh, we actually buy our own clothes. And, uh, and, and, of course, in those days, too, another uh, thing that the trustees used to always do was the president of the board had a tradition of giving his used car when he was through with it to the president for the, for the university the president to use. So uh, uh, all those things have changed uh, uh, pretty dramatically in the last uh, several years. And so have faculty credentials. Uh, I was president of Dickinson College for a dozen years and we had a first-rate faculty, um, a very good school, if I say so myself. But looking back into the not-so-distant future, or past, rather, I was uh, amazed at what I found. Several of uh, the faculty members in the 40s and 50s were graduates of the college who stayed on an additional year and got a master's degree, awarded by the college, I think illegally, by the way. The state never authorized that, as far as I could ever tell. And they stayed on and taught. And that was the faculty for several years, into the 50s. Uh, it worked. I mean, they were uh, serious teachers, and the students had a serious education. Uh, but uh, the world of uh, higher ed changed very rapidly in the 60s and 70s. And uh, by the 70s and 80s, uh, schools like Dickinson always recruited faculty who had the highest degree in their field. Uh, so in uh, the last 50 or 60 years, the nature of faculty has changed very dramatically in uh, many colleges and universities across the country, and I think uh, for the uh, better. Uh, tuition in those days was about, uh, I think it was $800. I've forgotten whether that was for the year or for the semester, but it wasn't very much. I remember going back and making a speech uh, a few years ago, and my honorarium was about seven times the tuition that I paid to study there. So I thought that was real progress. Now, <clears throat> let's, uh, let me spend the last few minutes here just uh, looking at some uh, ideas for reducing funding for higher education today and to uh, concur with a lot of that's been said already uh, at this uh, panel. Um, we probably need to give a lot more thought to how endowments are created, how they're supervised, and how funds are spent from endowment. Uh, it, um, it is interesting to me that every president, every board, values itself, judges itself on its ability to add to the endowment. Uh, it has to be bigger when they left than when they came. And there's got to be some end to this. I mean, why not? take some of the endowment income and reduce tuition uh, so that people benefit across the board. Uh, does it really do adequately just to use it for some financial assistance as, as, as uh, tuition continues to rise? 
Uh, there's a wonderful story about a very wealthy college in Philadelphia, which has an endowment uh, which allows it to operate with or without tuition. It operates with tuition, but it doesn't have to. It uh, had a Middle States review, and the Middle States board said, you need a new, uh, you need a new, a new science lab. Your science labs are outdated. The board hesitated to uh, spend any money on it. Uh, the uh, Middle States followed up uh, with another letter a year later, and the board's response was, we're out looking for donations to build the science building. So the idea of, tuition, uh, of these endowments is, is understandable and terrific, but they're really much too restrictive. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, do they ever get too big? I mean, when are they to be used and for what purposes? Um, the, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the uh, presidential salaries, which uh, Ben touched on, or administrative salaries, uh, is another uh, big problem, it seems to me, in uh, higher education institutions today. Uh, we somehow or other have uh, used the corporate model as a way of setting the salaries of uh, presidents, and those, of course, once they're set and high, uh, salaries underneath uh, the presidents tend to raise, rise to that level. Uh, we really uh, have, uh, uh, I think, uh, fallen uh, for the corporate model of uh, CEO funding, uh, and it doesn't fit uh, very well uh, in higher education, and of course uh, can be very costly. Uh, another big problem we have is with the administration of financial aid. The financial aid applications, as I'm sure you all know, uh, come from parents using the 1040 form, uh, which they allegedly submit to the IRS for income tax purposes. But the 1040 is available in huge quantities in any post office in America. And uh, I can tell you that there's a lot of fraud going on in what parents submit uh, to the financial aid offices of colleges and universities. And uh, they w underestimate their, uh, their income vastly, not on the federal income tax necessarily, but on the applications for financial aid from institutions. So the institutions are in a terrible situation. Uh, they depend upon financial aid, financial assistance, financial money, uh, but they, uh, they have no way of verifying the accuracy of the application forms they get. I had uh, one instance at Dickinson where I looked into this pretty closely. The uh, CEO of uh, one of America's <laughs> top 50 corporations uh, sent his daughter, child, uh, to Dickinson, applied for financial aid. I looked at this, I said, you know, this is crazy. Well, it turns out he'd been divorced and he gave up uh, custody of his daughter to his wife so that the wife's income was used uh, to uh, judge the financial aid for the daughter. Uh, I don't know how much of this goes on, but I presume, and I would guess there's quite a bit of it. Uh, after that, we took a little survey, 45% of Dickinson students' parents were divorced uh, at the time but that this happened uh, about 15 years ago. I imagine the divorce rate is even higher. But we have a, a terrible situation with financial aid. The feds provide it. Uh, we get the money through uh, the Department of Education and the Department of the Treasury, but the tr Department of the Treasury will not release income tax information 
to any outsider. So universities are supposed to somehow or other enforce uh, this uh, uh, application and student aid uh, allotment problem uh, with uh, zero information. And uh, consequently, it, I think it's never done. I've never heard of an instance where a 1040 form submitted to a university was called into question by the university. There's no way to do it. So anyway, we're on the road uh, to a very interesting, but I think very different future. A lot of what we've learned in the past uh, will be useful, uh, but uh, I'm guessing that we're gonna have situations out there we can't even begin to dream about today which will require uh, innovative solutions, which we haven't yet thought of. Well, thank you all so much. That was wide ranging. I think a lot of good ideas, a lot of good information. Um, we are going to open up to questions in just a minute, but I'm going to use my privilege as moderator to ask everyone a quick one before we start. Um, currently, the Education Department is in the process of writing new regulations dealing with college accrediting agencies as well as standards that colleges need to meet to get Title IV federal funding. And I wanted to see if we could quickly go down the line and just sort of get some thoughts about maybe what the Education Department needs to keep in mind to address some of the issues that have been brought up um, with sort of a lack of efficiency among uh, higher education institutions. I'll be very brief then. Um, in my view, I think that um, accreditation is probably one of the largest um, obstacles to innovation and competition in higher education. Um, for the reasons Josh said, it's it's a byproduct of um, third-party payer, right? We've basically recreated the healthcare system in uh, in higher education, where people don't bear the cost of what they're uh, what what they're doing. Um, and so, you know, what I think would be most useful would be to, uh, um, to, to reform accreditation uh, and think about accreditation in a fashion that allowed for more innovation, more variety um, of institutions and what everybody's been talking about forever um, uh, and is easy to say but hard to do, which is trying to measure outputs rather than inputs, right? Because accreditation is basically all an input measure pretty much uh, for various reasons that look an awful lot like a cartel enforcement device uh, rather than a quality assurance device. <clears throat> I um, agree with, uh, with Todd's views and would add that um, accrediting agencies when they visit campus usually do so um, as allies <coughs> of, of administrators. And my experience has been that um, campus administrators use accrediting agencies um, as weapons against the faculty, particularly uh, against faculty who challenge uh, the status quo on campus, who want to innovate. Uh, those faculty are told, well, you can't do that because uh, our accrediting agency won't allow it. And um, on a couple of occasions when I've looked into this, I've discovered that the only reason the accrediting agency was even aware of what was being done is because uh, their administrative hosts went to them and pointed to a particular new program and said, what do you think about that? Um, so, you know, I, I uh, not only agree with Todd, but I, I would um, think that in reality we need some uh, uh, model of uh, 
certification that uh, doesn't um, reinforce administrative control, that doesn't encourage cartelization. You know, I remember as a, as a graduate student at the University of Chicago, George Stigler used to always rail against uh, licensing, accreditation, and at the time I didn't fully appreciate just how right George was. Uh, one of my jobs when I was in the government was to license accrediting agencies. And I can't imagine a better way to regulate, use that word, higher education than to do it through independent accreditors. Uh, the role of the government, insofar as it went in those days, was to make sure the accrediting agencies were fair, open, independent, uh, not uh, making decisions which violated civil rights laws. Uh, in other words, to give them a clear field <clears throat> to accredit the uh, courses, the administration, the faculty, uh, whatever is involved in accrediting for any institution without, <clears throat> excuse me, without any government involvement at all. <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, we all think of the huge uh, federal government and how invasive it can be. Uh, the uh, higher ed part of the Department of Education had, I think, about uh, 50 people in it uh, when I was the assistant secretary. No thought amongst anybody there that we should do anything in terms of measuring and assessing and publicizing the quality of specific institutions. I mean, this was a crazy thought uh, in those days. We restricted ourselves uh, to issues of fairness, openness, and uh, that was it. We did delicense a couple of creditors uh, who were uh, up for relicensing because of uh, civil rights uh, questions. But never uh, did we remove accreditation powers from an agency uh, on the basis of their academic decisions. I'm, I'm told by a very reliable source that several years ago when Rick Perry was governor of Texas, there was agreement by the boards, uh, this had been carefully worked out over time, the boards of the University of Texas system, the Texas A&M system, the Texas Tech system, that the state of Texas would withdraw from the Southern Accrediting Association. Uh, the state would walk away from it and would take care of it on its own through the coordinating board in Texas, which would basically be there to look for evidence of theft within uh, state colleges. Mr. Perry backed away from it at the last minute. His explanation was, well, he might run for president and he'd be seen as a real nutcase if he had uh, removed the state of Texas from accrediting. But I think that one of the biggest problems of it is one size fits all. It's a Soviet-style planning thing, that all these schools are supposed to meet the metrics set by the accreditors. But obviously, there's nothing in common between Harvard and a small college that takes in students with very limited abilities. Uh, they have very different missions. And the accrediting associations don't do a particularly good job of, uh, of handling that. And so I think if we had a lot more flexibility among colleges, and as, as Todd said, try to have metrics of output. What is the value added at a college is the real test of its quality.
Thank you all so much. We'll now open the floor for questions. Just a few quick things to keep in mind. Uh, please, number one, please wait to be called on. Number two, we do have an audience that's watching online, so do please wait for the microphone to come around so our online audience can hear you. Um, please announce your name and affiliation, and uh, much like the last panel, feel free to ask a question, make a comment, feel free to disagree if you'd like. Just please keep it respectful and most importantly short. Um, these are the only thing in between y'all and lunch. So uh, I think there's a woman over here with the mic. Yeah, Carrie McDonald, I'm an education policy writer. In light of all of this administrative blight and thinking of my role as a mother of young children who may someday go to choose to go to college, uh, it seems to me that there would be a market developing for colleges and universities that are pushing away from this administrative blight and that that would be a competitive advantage for them. I'm wondering if you're seeing any of that. Well, I think the um, answer is yes, there should, and no, there isn't. Uh, I think, um, you know, there, there are many phenomena that are difficult to correct once they begin. And the growth of administration is one of those phenomena because the people who might correct it are the people who benefit from it. Um, you know, often when I, when I give uh, talks on this topic, I say to the faculty, you know, uh, you do have some power remaining to change this. However, um, you know, you have to be really mean and obstreperous. Yeah. Um, and most, most faculty either don't have the personalities for it or don't have a stake in it. Uh, I always say, so what if you shout at the provost? Um, he probably already doesn't like you. And they always look at me, really? Do you know something I don't? Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, it's hard to mobilize that constituency. Uh, parents sound like a good constituency. Uh, and it seems like um, you know, parents um, would uh, want to look at schools and try to assess the quality of the education rather than the quality of the administrative structure. Uh, but as, as uh, the economists present will tell us, the information costs would be very difficult to pay here. And moreover, it, it's not much of a, there's not much of an incentive for parents to do this. Look, parents want their kids to go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera. Uh, they don't want their kid to go to St. Aloysius by the swamp, uh, even though it might have um, uh, a lower cost and a smaller administration. So I, I think this is one of these problems that, that it's one of these human institutions that's difficult to change once, once it, the process is set into motion. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, if you compare um, traditional universities, uh, nonprofits to for-profits, you see a variety of differences that are related to this, right, to which for-profits are in a competitive market, right? What we see is a lot, we see money spent on other things, but a lot less bureaucracy uh, in, in uh, for-profit institutions. We also don't see all these investments in real estate and everything else, right? I mean, it's kind of absurd that there are universities in New York City that have football fields, right? When you think about how valuable that real estate uh, should be, right? And these buildings and trillions of dollars of real estate investments, for-profit colleges don't do that, right? They don't make these huge investments in these 
these uh, um, capital improvements and that sort of thing. They open new business, they open new campuses or expand new campuses when demand increases, they close them when they don't. They add new classes, they subtract new classes, right? So those who compete do compete, right? So the question is then why didn't the traditional universities not look like that, right? Um, and I think that Ben's right. It, it must be the, the incentives, right? Uh, which is, um, and I think he's also right, it has to do with this sort of um, weird sort of quasi-CEO model of higher education governance that we've come up with, right? Which is, uh, and I was shocked, uh, I was surprised when he said that 25% of uh, college presidents now are not academics. I, I believe it, and I think it's an astonishing thing, right? And so what you get are basically these boards of trustees, which are these successful business people, typically, right, who think of the university president as the CEO, right? And so, and because they're CEOs, right? And when they're CEOs, they worry about cost containment. They worry about investments. They worry about uh, getting rid of underperforming lines and expanding performing lines, right? And I think they take that and they map that on to a university. A nonprofit is not a for-profit, right? You don't have profit and loss uh, signals. The CEO, the college president, has a very short time horizon, right? Often five years when they want to, and then they want to get onto a, 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 another job, right? Every, they're always looking for another job, basically. And the provost is always looking to be a president, and the president's always looking to be the president somewhere else, right? And so they have very short time horizons. Uh, this is not something where they're likely to want to spend a lot of time and effort. Usually what they want to do is spend time and effort on things that get uh, attention, which is doing splashy things that usually requires hiring uh, 200 more people, right, to build a sustainability institute or this or that, right? Uh, all their incentives point to increasing uh, support staff, increasing bureaucrats rather than reducing it when you've got that, uh, that, that time horizon. So in a nonprofit mm -hmm. where you don't have profit and loss, where you've got short time horizons, where the incentives are basically to expand um, and do new things rather than systematically rationalize and uh, do less things. And universities, for whatever reason, are incredibly uninnovative. Um, I think partly it's because of accreditation. I think it's partly just because they just don't understand. They just don't understand it. I mean, it's just they just don't don't do different things. They do what everybody else does uh, because that's what everybody else does uh, um, for whatever reason. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but uh, but it creates an opportunity for schools that don't just do what everybody else does. I, I want to add do one you? one thing, if I can seize just one more minute. And that is that the uh, consumers of higher education are not particularly sophisticated. Um, you know, a few years ago, our benefactor, Mr. Bloomberg, may his name be praised, um, <laughs> decided that our campus needed to be beautified. And um, this wound up costing him uh, probably 30 or $40 million. All of the shrubs and trees and sidewalks were changed. The campus looks beautiful. And I remember, you know, at the faculty club, we said, this is stupid. Who cares about this? Uh, there are a lot of better things to spend money on. <clears throat> well, the uh, admissions people said the first thing that visiting parents pointed to when looking at the campus was how beautiful it had become. Uh, this, this bit of, of campus uh, refurbishment, they said, counted far more uh, for, to attract uh, new students than uh, the faculty's resumes. Uh, so, you know, that, that's unfortunately part of the case. 
Uh, the question is a good question. It raises issues that's on every parent's mind, I think. Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, if you look at the uh, cost to individuals for higher ed today, uh, it's not off the charts. I mean, for example, uh, your son or daughter could be uh, admitted and welcomed to George Mason University for uh, something under $13,000 a year uh, tuition which is fairly low. Uh, uh, actually, schools in the far west, Midwest, uh, have a tuition for out-of-state students uh, uh, not much more, over $10,000 uh, a semester. Now, that's not nothing. Uh, it's quite a bit of money. And we do uh, spend too much. I agree with my colleagues at the far end of this table. But it's still uh, worth saying, it seems to me, uh, that somehow or other, uh, universities have managed uh, to keep uh, the state uh, tuition fees uh, fairly low. Uh, now, if you're talking about private schools like uh, Dickinson, where I used to work, uh, you know, it's I can't even believe what the tuition is today, and I'm glad every morning that I'm not there to defend it. Uh, but uh, that's not all of uh, higher education today, and I think that's worth noting. I want to make sure we have the chance to get to a couple more questions. Uh, the gentleman in the center, I know you've had your hand up for a little bit. Thank you. Um, I'm Fazin Illich. So uh, the problem, I don't think, is that uh, there are non-academicians in powerful positions in academia. That's necessary because the, the academicians are not omniscient. And the problem is that these are bureaucrats instead of visionaries and imaginative people who can access the right hemisphere of their brain. Because ultimately the problem is that the, the solution to the most pressing problems we are facing will not come from the existing systems of thinking and practice. This is why you need people completely from the outside to come in and interact so we can find solutions. Well, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you haven't met many bureaucrats. <laughs> uh, you know, at the university, um, you know, in, a, in the history of America's universities, and I, I bow to the historians, uh, America's great universities were founded by loony academics. Um, you know, William Rainey Harper at Chicago. Uh, Johns Hopkins was, and Harper was a professor of Greek, Hebrew, and uh, Latin. Uh, Hopkins was founded by a geography professor. Now, I would submit that his knowledge of geography could be questioned. He put it in Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> but most of, the, most of the great universities of this country were founded by dreamers, professors, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, with some exceptions, the bureaucrats I've met in my life um, didn't have any new ideas. Uh, they generally were concerned with what is called in the trade best practices. Uh, that is making sure that their ideas were no different from anybody else's ideas. So to look to these folks for innovation and salvation, uh, I think won't get us anywhere. Um, I think, you know, the faculty, not everyone, a lot of dullards on the faculty too, I'm sorry to say, but 
on the faculty, you do find interesting new ideas. You know, that's what we're all about. We sit there and say, well, everybody seems to think X, but hey, what if it was Y? Now, maybe Y is silly, and that's okay too, but that's, that's where new ideas are generated. And my observation after now 50 years is that when administrators needed new ideas, they would turn to the faculty. Now today, of course, they hire consultants uh, who are best practices people like themselves. But if they really need to do something different, they come to the faculty. That's, that's, where, uh, that's where we differ. How about the gentleman in the blue shirt and the red tie in the center? Or, or how about, sure, we'll do uh, the gentleman over there in the yellow shirt and then the gentleman in the blue shirt. And if we can just keep answers short, that we'll, we'll wrap up after that, I promise. <laughs> okay, um, uh, Pat's fan, um, I hate to say this audience, retired federal. I, hate to say, I won't say bureaucrat because that's a bad word, or I guess I gather. Um, graduated in the 60s. Um, listening to what you talk about the administrator, administrators, I remember what Thomas Sowell once said that um, the bottom 30% of SAT scores went to um, schools of education. Um, but I'm wondering, if, I've always been dumbfounded that schools taking in students and then putting them in remedial classes. Is this a function of just increasing enrollment? I mean, it seems like if, if the academicians were really in charge, why, why would you let in a kid who has to go to remedial classes to be in there? It's crazy. I mean, you, you, my own undergraduate alma mater, West Point, started doing that, which just grossed me out. That the, uh, How could you possibly let someone in for four years of free education and then because and they had to take high school courses basically their freshman year. I, I just find this amazing. Is, it, is this a function of just increasing enrollment that the, the bureaucrats are doing? Well, one, one reason is third-party payers. Um, federally guaranteed student loans uh, will pay for those people to take their remedial classes. And... Um, you know, the downside for the college is very low. West Point, I can't, I can't answer, but um, uh, nonprofits, community colleges, and others have every reason to take those kids, uh, take their federally guaranteed student loans, which they now can't repay. So speaking as a faculty member on that, I, I think the uh, reasons uh, include uh, the fact that we know high schools in this country are... Uh, fairly poor in some parts of the country, very poor in others. I mean, poor in terms of quality and money. And uh, universities, uh, faculty are interested in giving these kids a second chance. And the, the major way of doing it, probably the best way, is to run summer programs uh, to try to bring students up to speed. Uh, but uh, in my experience, there's always been this faculty interest in uh, trying to uh, to uh, overcome uh, inadequate high school educations in some parts of the country. I'll just add, uh, um, your, uh, it's a great question. I don't know the specific answer to your question, but I think you've framed the way to think about it correctly, uh, which is follow the money, right? Think about what are the incentives to do this? 
Uh, and there is a kind of a misnomer to call nonprofit institutions nonprofit, right? Uh, they're maximizing revenues. I've never heard a college president say, well, I've raised enough money. There's a lot of other uh, um, uh, worthwhile charities in the world. So don't give to Harvard this year, right? Because we're nonprofit, right? Uh, and so I think it has something to do with how the, how the money flows through the system uh, and for some reason basically needing to put butts in seats uh, in the way, you know, there's uh, money that can be gained from doing that. All right, if we can just do the one last question for the gentleman in the center, and quick question, quick answer, and then we will get everyone to lunch. Thank you, my name is Nigel Ashford, the Institute of Humane Studies. This is for Professor Ginsburg. Uh, I really liked your book, and I want to say, do you see any grounds for improvement in the problems you identified since you wrote the book, and do you have any grounds for optimism for the future? Well, I'm always an optimist. Um, I think on a number of campuses, um, faculties have tried to make a stand. Um, you know, it was, it was mentioned earlier that faculty have difficulty obtaining information, and this is certainly one, one problem. Uh, a few years ago, the faculty at Purdue, I don't know if we have anyone here familiar with the story, but the faculty at Purdue demanded uh, a copy of the school's budget. Now, I know at, at Hopkins, we have a faculty budget committee that has never been shown the budget, but, um, <laughs> but the Purdue faculty demanded the budget. So the president, not the current one, but the previous one, gave them what uh, she claimed was the budget. Well, at Purdue, you know, they're engineers. So they take numbers very seriously. So they looked at the budget and realized it couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> So they collected money, faculty senate hired a forensic accountant <laughs> and showed, you know this story, right? And no, but, but showed that the budget was a lie. <laughs> and they went to the state legislature with it. And, you know, testifying before the state legislature, the president defended her budget. Well, the legislature set the budget for analysis and determined that it was totally uh, in error, shall we say. The president was fired. Now, the next president's budget probably also was false, <laughs> but um, that gave notice. So there are things faculties can do if they're willing to be obstreperous. Uh, and this, it's so hard for professors. People don't choose academic careers uh, because they want to storm up the hill with their weapons in hand. Maybe Dan, I don't know. Uh, but, and, and also, as I said before, it, it uh, is an investment of time and energy that takes us out of our labs, our, out of the library. But where, where college faculties have made a stand, administrators will back down. Because the current crop of administrators learned from the administrators of the 60s and 70s that if you fight it out, that's a career ender. In fact, you know, I, I used, before I became persona non grata with my book, I used to be on administrative search committees. And uh, thank God I've been fired from that. But, um, but one thing I discovered, the search firms who are in charge of these searches, uh, if you say, well, you know, person X, I, I do know something about that person, they're very slow to make decisions. Well, well the search firm director will say they're, very deliberate. <laughs> if you say, 
this person is a total dummy. Well, there are different ways of looking at things. But if you say the person is controversial, that's a killer. Um, so, you know, where the faculty chooses to fight it out, then the president or provost becomes controversial. That's, that's the controversial is admin speak for radioactive. Uh, you know, fa the faculty can win, at least temporarily, and it's a fight worth, worth engaging in. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to all of our panelists. We are heading now to lunch. The lunch and discussion will be had on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. And restrooms are also on the second floor. On your way to lunch, just look for the yellow wall. Thank you all so much. <laughs>